You are listening to the Krika Lecture Series podcast, produced by the Center for Russia, East Europe, and Central Asia at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This and other Krika podcasts are available on SoundCloud and iTunes. For more information about Krika's lecture series and public events, visit our website at krika.wisc.edu. So without further ado, let me introduce today's speaker. Dr. Smogulova is an Associate Professor and Dean of College of Humanities and Education at Kemep University. Her research interests include language ideology, language education, and language policy. She co-edited Language Change in Central Asia and co-authored the bilingual Kazakh-Russian Dictionary of Sociolinguistics. She has articles published in the Journal of Sociolinguistics, International Journal of Bilingual Education and Bilingualism, International Journal of the Sociology of Language, World Englishes, and the International Journal of Bilingualism. Welcome, Dr. Smogulova. Well, thank you, Sarah. Thank you so very much. And uh, let me start by thanking uh, for inviting me. It's always a great pleasure um, to talk to uh, my colleagues. So um, let me share my screen. And uh, show. can you see it, yeah? Yes, we can see it. Mm -hmm. And if you don't mind, I, I will leave the, because I'm working on the mark, I will leave um, the bar with next slide so I know what's coming up. <laughs> okay. Um, so uh, as you already said, I, uh, today I'm going to talk about uh, my uh, very short um, essay like piece, which was published uh, a year or a couple of years ago in the Journal of Sociology of Language. Um, and it's called um, When Language Policy is Not Enough. And uh, this is where I'm trying to. Sick. Um, or where I'm trying to try to think what is happening and uh, why uh, that language reform that has been largely successful in Kazakhstan still um, managed to create um, tension and social unrest. So what is uh, we are uh, doing, if not necessarily wrong, but what we need to critically think about and what do we need to change in the way we proceed with our language policy. Okay. And I'll start with um, a bit of background. I'm sure most people who are in the room are familiar with our context. Nevertheless, let me recap some of the information. So as many of you know, uh, since 1991 and a little bit previously before that, uh, Kazakhstan been actively uh, in the process of nation building. So uh, we became an uh, independent country from this after the Soviet Union disintegrated. And a lot of um, policy activities, including the language, including education, were uh, aimed at um, helping discursively construct a new idea of the national state of Kazakhstan. And, uh, uh, and, and as again, as you know from the literature and from the analysis of our uh, documents, you know that the basic idea behind the nation, nation state is 
uh, very, very traditional. So uh, it's a, we are building a very nationalistic state where uh, the, the, the framing idea is that there is one territory, one language and one people who speak the language. Okay, so Kazakhstan basically is, uh, is, a land, uh, is a land of Kazakhs who speak Kazakh. Okay, so, and from the Soviet tradition, we have so-called titular nationality, what the Kazakhs after whom this state is called, and they are the unifying and the central ethnicity uh, around, the, around whom the whole ethnic identity is built. Okay, so that's nation building. So when we come to discursive construction of, um, uh, of this nation state, um, a lot of is done in terms of language planning. Uh, so of course there is a historiography, there is an archeology, span there is a political side to it um, and many other things, but also the huge part of this discursive construction of new uh, social reality is given to language planners. And uh, our language planners basically played by the book. So we had the status planning, corpus planning, language spread and identity planning. So the very first thing uh, when uh, the government did when Kazakhstan became independent, they declared Kazakh the um, state language uh, and Russian was given uh, as doesn't happen even though it's kind of an official status in our constitution, it actually says Russian can be used aparos Kazakh if necessary. And uh, the most recent regulation uh, when it comes to um, a signage in linguistic landscape, the signage, official signage outside, now it says that Kazakh is an obligatory language and Russian can be used. So no signage is no longer required to be bilingual. Kazakh can be used. Uh, if there is a necessity in that. Okay. And, um, and also, if you uh, check our literature, you will see the whole debate on uh, what do we mean by national language? Why do we, what do we mean by official language? Um, and what do we mean by national language? So in Kazakhstan, to, um, uh, and uh, when the Soviet Union collapsed, you also know about that, um, the, uh, Kazakhstan, uh, was a and remains a multinational state, but um, but ethnic uh, distribution was quite different from what we have now. When the Soviet Union disintegrated, 40% of population were Kazakh, 40% of population were Russians, and 20% of minority. Today, the situation is quite different. Today, Kazakhs are about 70%, okay? um, about 10% of minorities, and 20% of um, ethnic Russians and Slavs. Okay, so apparently when the Soviet Union uh, disintegrated, it was very important to define the status of Kazakh uh, and how to define it and show it that it's above all other languages. So it's, um, so um, the uh, language planners came up with an idea that we're gonna de uh, declare Kazakh uh, national status and then Kind of no language has an official official status, but nevertheless they use it for the official purposes. So Kazakh and Russian are used for official purposes, but also we don't have a status of minority languages. Uh, Kazakhstan and neither of any former Soviet uh, states have signed the Charter of Minority Languages. So we don't use minority as a term internally. We use people of Kazakhstan 
we use the term um, diasporas. So this is about status. When it comes to that corpus, again, there is a massive uh, and tons of work were done to develop Kazakh language to make it fit for the modern um, modern purposes, uh, especially to be used as an official language, as a language of academia, a language of business, and uh, a lot of dictionaries are created, a new terminology is created, uh, then codification is done, uh, and so on and so on. Uh, so, sorry, um, and um, uh, and uh, what I'm not talking about today, but I'm sure you're very, very much aware of the ongoing debate on alphabet and orthography change. So, and the problem we cannot set the orthography spelling because we still don't have the set alphabet and it's kind of ongoing um, debate in the country, which alphabet to choose. Uh, almost in our national game now. Okay, so there's everyone linguists and non-linguists try to come up with their own version of alphabet and uh, justify one, why one version is better than the other. So we're still in this limbo. We kind of said that we're shifting from Cyrillic to Latin, but because we don't have a definite uh, approved final version of the alphabet itself, there is no approved final version of the spelling system. So it's very interesting uh, what is happening in terms of linguistic landscape uh, because of this uh, uncertainty. Uh, and of course, also when it comes to language spread, a lot was done to make sure that population learns Kazakh and Kazakh, if not becomes dominant language, but at least once becomes a very equal partner in everyday conversation. And one of the major ways to do that was education. From the very beginning, Kazakh became um, more Kazakh-speaking schools. Kazakh medium schools were opened because uh, they're not mean, not like large, were not very available at the beginning, uh, and especially in urban areas like Almaty, for example, or Karaganda in the north. Most of the schools were in Russian. So the more Kazakh schools were opened, and Kazakh became an, uh, a required subject in all Russian medium schools. And today, uh, kids in schools have up to five hours of Kazakh every, every week, uh, starting from uh, grade one um, uh, in uh, Russian medium schools. Okay. And of course, uh, something, um, some work was done on identity, creating a positive identity of Kazakh and Kazakh speakers. But this was to, to a lesser degree. So the all major efforts in language planning were focused on status, on corpus, and language spread. So what happened since then? As I said, the demographic has changed. But also, um, the school enrollment data has changed considerably. Today, uh, uh, up to 80% of school children are actually getting the education in Kazakh medium schools. Okay? So it's a significant shift. Um, also, what we have today is that the south and the west of the country are practically mono-ethnic, and, um, and Kazakh there is the main language of public domain. Um, and also, I'd like to note, um, because it seems like a lot of people here in Kazakhstan are not aware that uh, Kazakh is among the top 100 languages most most speakers. Why do you want to say that? Because despite all, all these changes, demographic changes, 
uh, changes in school enrollment, increasing and uh, not just bilingual Kazakh speakers, but actually increasing number of monolingual Kazakh speakers. And the fact that um, Kazakh is among the most top spoken languages in the world. Uh, in Kazakhstan, alarmist discourse is very, very prevalent. So people, there are still people out there who constantly say that Kazakh language is in distress, that it's, uh, it's going to die, uh, we need to do something, um, and um, that the Kazakh language is in, in, in danger. So it, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a very, very persistent um, uh, discourse in our public domain. And um, by itself, it wouldn't be a problem, okay? Uh, because there is some justification to it because Kazakh uh, still uh, is not functioning, is not fully functioning as an official language. There's uh, language development needs to be done in that area when it comes to terminology. Uh, then there is um, a lot of uh, uh, code mixing and code switching on everyday talk, like when you talk in terms of tourism and so on. Yes, there are issues that uh, um, people could be uh, worry could worry about. Nevertheless, what what I find particularly worrisome is that this um, discourse of language endangerment actually coexists with other discourses which I find uh, disruptive and dangerous. Okay, one is uh, continuously shaming and blaming Russian speakers and especially Russian speaking ethnic Kazakhs for not speaking Kazakh in all spheres, in all domains, and uh, blaming them for, for the fact that language is not developing. Um, then we, from time to time, we hear calls to strip the Russian language of its status, even though it doesn't have any official status of what it says. I repeat, it can be used apart with Kazakh when necessary. So uh, people say that this is too much, uh, so Russians shouldn't have any the status, uh, shouldn't be mentioned in our constitution. Um, then there are also calls to close Russian medium schools. Um, they, uh, they are believed to be dangerous, especially after what is happening um, in Ukraine. Um, also, um, uh, also, there is a lot of um, conversation is happening that we need to eliminate all our mixed schools. And so mixed school is, is not um, uh, is something very specific. So mixed school, it doesn't mean that kids are educated bilingual school and kids are getting education into languages. Mixed school, it simply means that in one building, you have some classes that are taught in Russian and some classes that are taught in Kazakh. So the kind of two, two, two schools are coexisting in one physical building. Why is it happening? Because as I said previously, most of the schools in Kazakhstan used to be Russian, especially in urban areas, used to be Russian medium. And now when parents decide, or more parents chose to educate their kids in Kazakh and my internal migration happened, a lot of people from rural areas moved to uh, larger cities like Almaty. Uh, there, is, uh, there, was, there was a need to open more Kazakh medium schools and Kazakh medium classes, but there is no facilities available. So one of the solutions was to open Kazakh classes in uh, Russian medium schools. So the half of the schools is Russian medium and half, another half is Kazakh medium. So, um, and there is a, 
very, very frequently the calls that we have to eliminate these mixed schools, that uh, the fact that Kazakh-speaking kids uh, study with Russians and Russian speakers is actually endangering their language acquisition, uh, it's bad for their identity, um, and so on and so on. Uh, also, we hear frequent calls that we need to stop teaching Russian in Kazakh medium schools. And these calls became more active after the February events. And, uh, and um, so that, I'm just giving examples of various uh, things you can hear in our media and public discourse. And one of the things I have heard uh, when people are discussing alphabet was saying, why only Kazakh? learners should suffer and switch from Cyrillic to Roman script. Why don't we change uh, writing for the Russian language as well, okay? Uh, and I explained what happened. The whole discussion was people are saying, oh, if you do that, if you change the alphabet, uh, parents would, uh, yeah, people are shrugging. Uh, I actually heard that this is, was official event where people were discussing alphabet. And uh, one of the speakers said, well, you're all aware that if we just, if we finally change the alphabet, when we finally change the alphabet from Kazakh alphabet from Cyrillic to Roman, a lot of parents would decide against sending their kids to Kazakh medium schools and opt for Russian medium schools. So to prevent that, why don't we change the script for the Russian as well? So both in both schools, kids suffer. Okay, not just Kazakh-speaking kids. Okay, so this is what we uh, hear, and this in the alarmist discourse is um, is very very dominant um, in our public debate. So what is happening? So as I said, on one hand, we actually have the dramatic changes uh, in uh, demographic composition. On the other hand, uh, we still see uh, this uh, distress uh, that Kazakh is not doing enough and the Kazakh speakers, uh, there are not enough Kazakh speakers and the Kazakh language is not well developed, is not functioning as it's supposed to function, the state officials don't speak the language and so on and so on. Okay, so the question I'm asking is what is happening? Why do we keep having this uh, debate 30 years later? Okay, and um, um, in a little bit of theory here. So what we um, what we have and a lot of linguists, social linguists and state officials, we kind of still operate in produce model uh, when we have uh, this political structure of the nation state. Okay? And if you look at uh, this traditional structure, the way it was developed in the uh, Western uh, literature is uh, this, uh, this model uh, assigns a particular language variety as a state language. Okay? So, for example, French in France, uh, English in the UK, um, German in Germany, um, and, um, and in this particular linguistic market, if you speak the right choice of a language, so if you speak the state language, okay, state or official, okay, uh, it is seen as indexical of being the right sort of a person and gives access to the right sort of education, okay? which in turn allows access to uh, other economic and cultural resources. Okay? So if you speak standard French, then uh, you become, uh, you, uh, you, you have access to other things. Okay? You have access to better education, or, or like education gives you access to better French, then becomes uh, indexically linked to your identity, 
and uh, to, to different types of access, different types of economic position, uh, your status, um, and a variety of cultural resources. Okay, so this is the traditional uh, established nation states. However, what we're seeing in Kazakhstan, this framework doesn't really capture um, the states in transition, states where um, we are reimagining our language hierarchy. Okay, so Russian used to be the dominant official and state language of the Soviet Union, and Kazakh, who, even though it had an official status as a titular language of the Republic, nevertheless, the hierarchy was quite clear. So you had Russian and then titular language and the minority languages. Okay, now the whole system is changing, and the Kazakh. Uh, now, uh, and actually when you do surveys uh, among people, and we've been doing surveys, and me and other colleagues, uh, it's actually so that it, now in the new imagined hierarchy of languages, it, we have, you have Kazakh, they have English, and Russian has slowly moving to the bottom of that hierarchy from the top. Okay, so we, we have the situation which is very close. Okay. So uh, going back to the paradox. So what is happening? Kazakh is a state language and it is a language of majority of population. Okay, yet um, what we're seeing, we're seeing a persistent social inequality which runs along language lines. So we have social inequality that coincides with language lines and um, ethnic lines. Okay. Um, Kazakh speakers still tend to be less well educated, and they're more, much more likely to be socially disadvantaged in comparison with their Russian-speaking compatriots. Okay. Um, and so, and I explain what is happening. Russian proficiency is still linked to higher income, uh, while lack of lack of language proficiency appears to act as an economic penalty. So, if you are monolingual Kazakh speakers, speaker, it's more difficult for you to find. Uh, a better job um, in urban areas, of course, and not all country, but um, uh, uh, central part of the country, um, north and east. Uh, and uh, when we looked at international tests like PISA, we see that Kazakh medium schools underperform um, uh, in almost all tests. Okay, and it's um, it's kind of easy explanation to say that's the language that uh, at fault here. But if you look at actually what is what we're seeing is that we're seeing growing socioeconomic inequality between rural and urban population. Okay. And, um, and in Kazakhstan, like in many post-Soviet states, this division is extremely important. So it's not just a place of residence because uh, it's, it's a kind of, it's a serious class gap. Um, because um, urban areas remain underdeveloped. Um, there's like in comparison to rural areas remain underdeveloped, there is no jobs. Um, and uh, I'm gonna talk about, mention that a little bit later, just flagging that it's, it's such an important division. And it happened to be that during the Soviet time, most of uh, Kazakhs lived outside of the city, okay? in underdeveloped region with little access to quality education. So of course, these divisions became even worse when the Soviet Union and help uh, subsidiaries to the agricultural um, um, culture disappeared. 
Okay, and just, just to mention, in Almaty, for example, um, um, uh, in the 80s, 1980s, only 20% of urban Almaty population were ethnic Kazakhs. 80% or Russian Slavs or other nationalities. Okay? And now the composition of the city, um, Almaty, the, the largest megapolis is very different. Okay? Now the majority of population um, uh, are actually ethnic Kazakhs while the city still remains uh, the one of the most Russified. Um, also, so that was a kind of socioeconomic aspect of it. Now, when it comes to uh, education policy, um, um, what we're seeing um, that from our data is that while Russia still mediates uh, socioeconomic divisions, and as I said previously, like uh, middle class and upper middle class and urbans are more likely to be Russian speakers, okay? Uh, well, if not monolingual, but very, very balanced bilinguals. Um, in rural areas, actually, Russian uh, um, access to Russian is very limited. Okay? And um, because of lack, a lack of quality of Russian language teaching and decreasing ethnic diversity, okay, well, access to Russian is becoming limited. And I would even, I even claimed in one of the papers, I really like uh, Bloomer's uh, term, bourgeois resource, it, I think it is becoming that bourgeois resource when the certain classes speak Russian, but it's not the uh, very, um, uh, standard Russian is no longer accessible to a lot of people in Kazakhstan. So they may speak vernacular Kazakh, they may have some passive uh, ability to watch uh, TV programs, but it's not full proficiency in Russian, professional proficiency to be able to do things in the language. Okay. Um, and also, I'm sure you are very, um, uh, quite aware of the uh, trilingual policy that we announced in 2015 and fully implemented in 2016, okay? where uh, it people were told that all, all children in Kazakhstan should be uh, developing proficiency in three languages, Kazakh, Russian, and English. Um, and uh, some subjects uh, were were supposed to be taught in English, some subjects were in Kazakh and some subjects in Russian uh, in both um, schools, Kazakh medium and Russian medium schools. But as Karabasova rightly noted, um, um, more emphasis was actually put on proficiency and developing proficiency in English than in Kazakh um, among Russian speakers or Russian among Kazakh speakers. Okay? Um, and what I would say is that it's further deepened already existing inequality and uh, um, I use term, Myers-Scott term, elite closure. So now what we see is elite is actually multilingual. Okay? A lot of kids that come from elite schools or upper middle-class families, they actually speak at least two, most of them speak three languages. If you look in the rural area, uh, if you look at our minority population, then um, they're more likely to speak um, non-standard varieties of Kazakh, non-standard variety of Russian, and have very little uh, access or proficiency in English. Okay. So I'm using the term linguistic uh, repertoire here instead of just talking about languages. Okay, so what, we, what I think we're seeing is that language policy has unintentionally resulted in widening 
already existing social difference and social inequality. And, and it's important that it's globalizing the economy. So Kazakhstan, because we are fully integrated in the global system, uh, no longer in a separate um, the enclosed uh, piece of land. Okay, so this um, resulted that in growing uh, gap between um, uh, between different social groups who happen to speak, to, who happen to have different linguistic repertoires. Okay. So how this global market, new global market is different. Okay. And, um, and just, I'm just, there are a couple of quotes, I think they're important for understanding what is happening here. And Heller 2003, she said, we need to expand our understanding of language as a marker of ethnic identity or national affiliation to include consideration of how the position of a language within the global knowledge-based marketplace can affect how both the language and its speakers are socially positioned, okay? So it's no longer we're talking about as a city enclosed Kazakhstan, when people speak Kazakh, Russian, and other minority languages, we are actually participating in a, in a global market, okay? Uh, the people are going to study abroad, we have international corporations, we're opening international schools, we're opening international universities. Um, our elite is actually very, very much linked to the, to the international elite. And the kids go um, to study in top universities. So, but that again, this is, uh, you, you see a very, very mobile elite and pretty immobile um, lower classes, especially in rural areas. Okay, so kind of, uh, but it's important to understand. And also, I really like what Kodo uh, said in 2018, that we need to reevaluate re our current assumption that desires for independent territory and self-rule are more important for language revitalizations and economic advantage. And we need to admit that little attention paid to political economy produces naive accounts of the role of language in relations to promotion of social justice. So what I'm trying then further develop is that we need a lot, a lot more critical appraisal of language policy. So we should stop speaking just about developing language. And in Kazakh people would say, we need to make our Kazakh stronger. Uh, because if you don't develop, because language is, it's an ideology, like language is something that exists in your heads. It's, it's not an objective reality. Um, language is a sum of its speakers. So for the language you develop, you need to develop its speakers. Okay? Something that is obvious to source linguists still kind of uh, eludes. Uh, many people when they talk about languages and language policy. So what I'm trying to say is that we need um, a very critical appraisal of both sociolinguistic and socioeconomic consequences of language reforms, because what you meant to be <coughs> to help to develop Kazakh actually created a wider socioeconomic differences and uh, gaps between people who have different linguistic repertoires. And also we need to ask ourselves, what was the effect of raising the status of Kazakh, upscaling Kazakh in the context of expansion of existing political economies and globalization? 
and uh, and what 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 we've seen is actually, as I said, if you are a monolingual Kazakh speaker, recently who recently internally migrated from rural area to uh, urban area, you have no education, you have no other languages, and you have like no means to buy a house, uh, you have no job, no skills. Um, of course, um, and nothing else that, but then you're told you are the titular, you are a representative of titular nationality, and you have more rights than anyone else, okay? So this is not the healthiest of situations you may uh, want to have in your country, okay? So uh, what is important, I think, uh, and this, this is especially important for our state officials to understand, okay? Something we already know in sociolinguistics, but it still kind of eludes um, uh, 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 many officials when they uh, talk about language policy is that recognition does not lead to fair redistribution. Even if you change the status of languages, but it doesn't have an economic mechanism to it, then um, it's, uh, it, we, we just kind of see a widening socioeconomic gaps. So for long, for so long, the state policy has been focusing on discursive strategies of legitimization of the Kazakh nation state. Okay? And the key form of traditionalist knowledge production or reclaiming physical and symbolic spaces. We did a lot of renaming of our uh, linguistic landscape, managing population, uh, homogenization and redistribution. Uh, we had a policy of, uh, on, of bringing uh, ethnic Kazakhs from abroad. Today, almost two, two million of, uh, of our population out of about 20, 19, 20 million, 10%. Actually, what we call oral man and now, now new term Kandas, the people who are Kazakhs who are born outside of Kazakhstan and repatriated. And the distribution of population from the Kazakh dominant um, south to the um, Russian dominant um, north and managing language. Okay? Um, so that's what we did traditionally, and we did it by the book. Okay? So we did everything that literature says we're supposed to do for this traditionalist um, knowledge and a new reality production. However, at the same time, little or no attention was paid to eliminating structural and material inequalities. And, um, uh, and this is, uh, you have to understand this, this is like, we're talking about the situation when the Soviet Union disintegrated, it's actually meant abolishing um, the whole support system for rural industry and subsidiaries. Okay, and it re, uh, subs, uh, sorry, uh, subsidies. And it resulted in unemployment, uh, growing poverty, uh, uh, declining standards of living. So a lot of owls uh, in rural Kazakhstan, they don't have access to water um, um, or heating, even though we are uh, oil producing nation, okay? Um, a lot of small schools were closed because they're too expensive to maintain and we have huge territory with small population. Um, so that was uh, deemed to be too expensive and a lot of small schools were closed. So in, it in, uh, led to uh, urbanization and abandoning small cities, abandoning owls, um, just name it. And in general, it's also meant decline in college of education because of, um, because of Im, uh, ex, uh, immigration. A lot of uh, teachers, especially of uh, 
non-Kazakh ethnic background um, left the country. And you probably know that about 1 million of uh, Germans left the country, uh, or a lot of Ukrainians left the country, a lot of Russians left the country, and with up until recently, up until war, okay, um, more people are leaving than coming back um, of certain ethnic groups. And uh, um, all this led to mass rural to urban migration, um, long commuting for work in cities, um, and uh, many migrants who are mainly Kazakh speaking uh, remain marginalized in these um, urban areas. <clears throat> so, so what are the lessons we need to take from um, our case? Okay? So I, I believe that Kazakhstan's case illustrates that without the guarantee, uh, guarantee of material conditions for actual participation, recognition alone simply, simply gives a symbolic voice to subaltern bodies. Okay? Um, so by itself, having a voice is not so bad, just even having a voice if you have nothing uh, had nothing previously. But I think what is dangerous is that, um, that giving symbolic voice without changing socioeconomic positioning of speakers can be potentially dangerous. And we have already seen this conflict when uh, Kordai conflict with Kazakhs, basically uh, pogrom of um, Dungan communities by ethnic Kazakhs. And we, we constantly see these um, uh, clashes from um, well, Kazakh speakers and um, other ethnic groups. <clears throat> so uh, what I'm calling for is that we should stop treating symptoms because language is just a symptom, okay? It's, of course, it's very important, of course, it's very symbolic, but we've done enough in terms of uh, symbolic redistribution. Now we need to think of more material uh, sources for inequality. So we need to eliminate this uh, material source of inequality, okay? By focusing predominantly on discourse production and language management, language policy research de-emphasizes the material sources of inequality. So we don't talk enough about uh, divisions between rural and urban Kazakhstan. So we focus on languages while we should be speaking about uh, socioeconomic differences. Um, and um, what uh, in turn is that language management often restricted by the ritualistic and symbolic gestures, and it cannot change and rectify historically formed relations of power, okay? Because they remain, that we keep talking about language that we're not doing enough, that we have to create another dictionary, uh, maybe no one is using, or we're changing street names, but we're doing very little to change the actual conditions uh, that create these tensions and inequality. And uh, the, my recommendation would be that in, in Kazakhstan and in other situations, similar situations, language policy recommendations must address the need to create economic niches and opportunities for speakers of languages and process of revitalization in the statement. And this is well known in literature. So for language to, re, to, uh, uh, to revitalize languages, uh, its speakers should have economic niches. Okay? But if you just, just simply change the status without giving them this economic opportunity, without creating the spaces where language can be safely used and can develop, and to, but we need to create the means uh, uh, where 
particular language is required. Okay, so we know that from the literature already from a small, from the context of language revitalization of small languages. And I think we should use that even when we talk about um, languages as Kazakh, which is a state language. Uh, but a lot of people who speak Kazakh, they don't have economic uh, and educational opportunities. So we need to create that to, to change the situation. So instead of just speaking about language, we should speak about um, changing um, and challenging material source of, in of inequality. So this is basically it. I am done. Okay, and I'm ready for your questions. <laughs>